We uh, return again to this marvelous historical account penned by Moses as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit from the book of Genesis and to the 25th chapter. I'll ask you to turn your attention with me. Genesis chapter 25. We have been now for some uh, 27 weeks since last July sojourning with Abraham from Ur through Canaan down to Egypt and back to the promised land again. And now to the very graveside of this great hero of the faith we go. We've come to know him and to love him, our father Abraham, as the scripture calls him. We have admired his graces. We have cringed at his weaknesses, for we find them both at work in his spiritual children, even us. Now he is laid to rest, but in a sense not he alone, even in his burial as in his life. We see something of ourselves as well, who have been called by the scripture to consider his faith and to imitate it. Francis Schaeffer once posed a very important question that has a great effect on the Christian church in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st, he asked, how then shall we live? We might ask this morning on our way to this funeral service in Genesis 25, how then shall we die? But first let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon your holy word. We know our weaknesses uh, in some ways best when we come to your word. For here is the voice of God to be heard. And who are we to hear and even begin to understand in our weakness and frailty? We must have your spirit, our Father, to illumine us. The same spirit who inspired these words uh, thousands of years ago as a people uh, made their way through the wilderness in exile. And uh, Moses penned these words, now the same spirit who directed him to open our hearts and illumine us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 25, we begin at verse one. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now it sounds to us at this point in the text like Abraham had remarried after, his, uh, after the death of Sarah. In fact, at some point over the past weeks, if I recall correctly, I said as much uh, to you because that was at the time my understanding of the text that Abraham remarried after Sarah's death. But uh, in this uh, week of reading and studying, I've become uh, less convinced about that order of events. Um, the record here may not be, probably is not a perfectly chronological one, wasn't meant to be a chronological uh, account. Most of the uh, commentators agree that this information is probably placed here as a summary so as not to interrupt the flow of the narrative of Abraham's life. What that means then is that Keturah was not uh, a wife in the fullest sense of the word, but rather a concubine of Abraham's. And in fact, that's exactly what the scripture calls Keturah in 1 Chronicles 1, uh, Abraham's concubine. John Calvin thought that uh, Abraham added her after sending Hagar 
away. But of course, we can't know exactly uh, when uh, this happened for sure. This much we do know, uh, and will be obvious from the text as we continue to read, that in Abraham's own life, God was true to his promise through Sarah and Hagar and Keturah. Uh, Abraham did indeed become the father of many nations, some of whom are listed here beginning in verse 2. A list, by the way, that not only includes the names of individuals, but also of tribes and of tribal towns. So picking up at verse two, she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. A, um, uh, important and interesting emphasis here on the fact that the covenant would continue through Isaac and his seed was to remain pure. Verse 7, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy been said of the 19th century Scottish theologian Thomas Erskine of Linlothen that his life recurred to the memory of his old acquaintances like the sigh of an exile. He seemed never to take root in this world. To him, many of the things that most interested other men were only the furniture of an in, not really important. He wasn't staying. He was a wayfarer, a pilgrim. In this way, brothers and sisters, Thomas Erskine was a lot like his spiritual father, Abraham, from the time of his calling out of the land of Ur to a land that God would show him. To the very day of his death, Abraham was a pilgrim, a a wayfarer making his way through the world in faithfulness to his duties here, of course, but making his way through this world with his eyes set on another. As we reflect back on his life, we see many ups and Downs from the idolatrous life of Ur, Abraham is called by the voice of God to leave his land, his home, his people, even his family, to a land that the Lord would show him with promises to make his name great and to make him the father of many nations. 
And then there is the arrival in Canaan, but so soon after that, the famine that strikes and Abraham heads for Egypt and, and there the terrible betrayal of Sarah and the intervening mercy of God to save Sarah's honor and Abraham's life. And that sad episode upon their return to Canaan, you remember, and the dividing of ways between Abraham and his nephew Lot, only to have to come back to save his nephew's skin from those who had taken him captive in a daring feat, you remember, of military prowess against all odds, pitting his small band against the conglomeration of kings. And then God covenants with Abraham in that awe-striking night scene of fire and smoke and the promise of a son which promise Abraham himself struggles to believe as the years go by, year after year, until Abraham and Sarah are both beyond years of natural fruitfulness. And then there is Hagar and Ishmael and the joy of a son and so quickly soured then by jealousy and embittered by separation. You remember the three men who came to Abraham and announced that Sarah would within a year have a son. But at that same episode, Abraham is told about the destruction of the city, Sodom and Gomorrah, which in the end are destroyed for, even, for lack of even ten righteous in them and the terrible failure again jeopardizing it it seemed the very covenant itself the future of the covenant when Abraham lies again about Sarah this time to Abimelech and God rescues him again and true to his promises gives Abraham a son Isaac but just when things seem to have settled down God God calls for the unthinkable, a sacrifice of Isaac. And Abraham passes that test with flying colors of faith. Then the burial of his wife and the finding for, of a wife for Isaac from his own people in Mesopotamia, and now the passing down of his estate to his son Isaac, in whom the promise continues, but not before giving good gifts to the sons of his concubines. It's truly been a remarkable, remarkable life of faith. But if there's any note we might strike to summarize that life, any sort of overarching theme that pervades it all, it must be the one to which Scripture itself draws our attention. Abraham was to the end a pilgrim all of his days he was a pilgrim, passing through the land for and, and even understanding that land of promise itself as a picture of a better country that is a heavenly one, a city prepared by God for them, a city that has foundations whose founder and designer and builder is God. And now scripture transports us to the side of Abraham at his deathbed after 175 years of life, 100 of them spent in pilgrimage, to set our eyes on the face of, of an aged saint whom we admired in life, 
and now will want to imitate also in death. He died a pilgrim's death. And you and I will want to follow after our father Abraham's example in this too, unless the Lord should come before that day. Consider then first that to die a pilgrim's death, you must live a pilgrim's life. To die a pilgrim's death, you must live a pilgrim's life. I'm speaking, of course, to those of you here who are already Christians, because you enter the pilgrim's life by faith, and, uh, and I'm going to say that in all likelihood, that not all of you here have entered into a pilgrim's life. I'll come back to that later. But right now, I speak to those of you who are already on pilgrimage, to those who are called pilgrims by virtue of your membership among the covenant people of God by faith. And that is what you are. You, you are pilgrims. And you would die a pilgrim's death. But you must be reminded from time to time to live a pilgrim's life. The reason, of course, is that we're so often tempted to live not as pilgrims, but as settlers. I mean, we want to grow satisfied with the things of earth, with our possessions, with our things, and with our money, our routines, our comforts, and some, all the things which we, with which we line our nests in this life. Is it bad to have possessions, to have money or cars or house or routines or comforts? Of course not. Few, I am convinced, could match the riches and the wealth that Abraham had, had amassed during his pilgrimage. We can be sure that the gifts that he gave to the children of his concubines were handsome gifts indeed, and that the wealth he passed down to Isaac was something along the line of a, of a king's ransom. But Abraham held those things loosely, as he did even the land itself. In fact, he actually owned only a small, small portion of it, and now he would enjoy that portion only in the sleep of death, the burial cave at Machpelah. But all of that mattered little, you see, because the eyes of his heart were filled with another world, with a heavenly one, which we understand now will ultimately be heaven come to earth at the coming of our great Lord and King, what in scripture is called the new earth. In other words, having set his eyes on the heavenly kingdom of which the land was, was but a picture, a foreshadowing, Abraham will rise from the dead one day to be the possessor of both. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, the Christians who did the least for the present world, uh, I'm sorry, the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have begun thinking less of another world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim 
at earth, and you get neither. That's the point, Christians. Too often, far too often, we grow satisfied, especially we who enjoy the luxuries and the comforts of our day and, and place. We actually think to find our happiness, our fulfillment in the things of earth. As long as lunch is on the table, as long as I'm not in pain, and there's a full tank of gas in the car, and the mortgage payment is made, and maybe there's enough left in the account to pay the next mortgage payment, and the roof isn't leaking, and we're happy. And yet we're not happy. We're never happy when we seek our happiness in such things. How much is enough? You've heard that question asked, and you know the proverbial answer, don't you? Just a little bit more. The treasures and the pleasures and the conquests of earth are never enough to satisfy, not for long. Jay Gould, the famous American millionaire, died possessing $50 million, but summed up his life casting this verdict on himself, I suppose I am the most miserable devil on earth. Lord Byron, who drifted from one woman to another to another in the pursuit of pleasure, groaned on his deathbed an old man at 36. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world of his day and then wept because he said there are no more worlds to conquer. All of these tried to find their home, their ultimate comfort in the things of earth and every one of them and a multitude like them have found the things of earth terribly, terribly wanting, particularly in the day of their death. A colorful image that was conveyed to me some months ago, it was said, you never see a U-Haul trailer being pulled behind a hearse. Yet we far too often live like these, as if the things of earth are of importance in themselves and an end in themselves. Let us take a page from Abraham's life and apply it to ourselves this morning and all our lives. We will die as pilgrims. We will die this pilgrim death only when we have lived the pilgrim's life. Holding on to the things of earth loosely and knowing that all we have and all we are, we have for one purpose and that is to invest it in another world. To, as our Lord Christ taught us, to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And if we may say so, where death cannot part us from our true treasure, which is found ultimately in Jesus Christ himself and in the joys, the splendor of his presence. Forever.
brings me to the second point. If, you, if to die a pilgrim's death, you must live a pilgrim's life. Then on the other side of the equation, to die a pilgrim's death is to enter into a pilgrim's home. The great apostle put it in these same terms when he wrote out of his own pilgrimage this, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I think we get a little hint of that kind of thinking there in verse eight. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Well, there are plenty of interpreters who want that phrase, gathered to his people, to mean nothing more than a physical laying to rest in the ground, in the grave with the others. But, but there was only Sarah, you remember, in the cave. And the text says that Abraham was gathered to his people. What's the point? The point is that pilgrimage on earth ends with heaven when we are gathered to our people. Now granted, Ishmael too is said to be gathered to his people upon his death, so we cannot make a whole lot of this. But there is certainly a sense that the finished nature of pilgrimage on earth is a place after death where we'll be able to recognize the ones we loved while on earth and we'll know them. At the very least, that's what it means. And then combined with all the rest of what scripture has to say about heaven, we may fairly say that it will be a time of great rest and rejoicing and pleasure where pilgrimage will be no more. What is incomplete, to be sure, this, this intermediate state, we, we call it, this time in heaven, and even Abraham now in glory awaits the coming day when soul and body will be joined together again in the complete fullness of God's promise of possession of the land of all the earth will be realized. Scripture says that it is so, that the promise still awaits the fullness. And this is the reason Scripture gives, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they, that is our forefathers, should not be made perfect. In fact, Abraham's burial at Machpelah serves as a sign that he will inherit the land of promise when we inherit it with him. And with that land, all the earth. But it is also to be sure a great rest, a great reward for those who have been pilgrims on the earth. Meanwhile, in our pilgrimage on earth, there is something of a of a homing instinct, couldn't we say? In every pilgrim, a homing instinct. We, we wonder every year as the, um, the birds again enter our backyard as they're making their way back north as they are right now. Some birds are reappearing on our feeder who have been gone for months and very soon will be gone again to their homes up north. 
And there they will return, so many of them, to the very same tree to build their home. Even hundreds of miles away, they know right where to go. They have that homing instinct. And you've all heard the stories, of course, of dogs and cats making their way back home across miles and miles of distance or Pigeons who find their way back to their roost or salmon who return to spawn in the very same place of their birth and so on. Well, these are remarkable indeed. But is, not, is it not also true of us in a certain sense, we who are pilgrims on the earth, that we have an instinct about us, something akin to the law that is written on our hearts. We have an instinct for being at home with the Lord. It's been called a homesickness for heaven, an ache that cannot be satisfied or by anyone or by anything except God and the presence of God. All feel it, but only some understand it, that in a deeper sense than Cleopatra meant, we might each truly say, I have immortal longings in me. These longings, brothers and sisters, will be satisfied the day we are transported into his presence, into the place where there is no sun, because he himself is the light of the place, and where our pilgrimage will and in the glorious splendor of home with Christ. Far o'er yon horizon rise the city towers where our God abideth. That fair home is ours. That does not mean, of course it does not mean that, that you will not work and work hard at your duties in this life. In fact, in all that concerns the advancement of God's kingdom, the taking possession of the earth, that his will be done on the earth as it is in heaven, you will only, like Abraham and like the great apostle, you will only work all the more diligently and mightily because you are moved by and motivated by the promise, the vision of home. So far I've spoken to you about, I've spoken to you rather who are already pilgrims and know yourselves to be so, but there is one important point that must be made for you who are not yet on pilgrimage, something you must know, and that is this. To live as a pilgrim and to die as a pilgrim, you must believe as a pilgrim. You must have a pilgrim's faith. That is what Abraham was commended for. And it is only the only way that you may enter into pilgrimage. You, you cannot make yourself good enough for pilgrimage. You cannot be daring enough for pilgrimage. You cannot be strong enough for pilgrimage. The only way to live a pilgrim's life and to die a pilgrim's death is to live by Faith, by sheer and utter trust and confidence in God to provide, 
and to lead and to save. It is precisely faith and faith alone by which God, God's grace flows to a sinner like you or like me. Listen to these from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered up to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Noah being warned of the, uh, by God of the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. These all died in faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It is by, by faith, by faith, dear friends, faith which Martin Luther defines simply as nothing else but a sure and steadfast looking to Christ that these, these plain, ordinary people of the same flesh that we are made of them not only pilgrims, but titans of the Christian faith. It made of them these boys and girls, men and women, who would not only endure through all that pilgrimage must require of such people in life, but also possessors of the unspeakable gifts of God in the next. So I say to you, to all of you, listen carefully to the words of the preacher in Hebrews, while the promise of entering the rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For we who have believed enter into that rest. Abraham wasn't perfect. We've established that beyond all doubt. He sinned, he struggled, he stumbled at times just as all Christians have and do, just as we have done. The triumph for Abraham and the triumph for all who follow in his spiritual footsteps, you see, lies not in them, but in God who comes to a sinner and makes of her a saint who makes of him a pilgrim soldier through faith. And faith, the scripture says, is the victory that overcomes the world. I would, say, I would that every one of you in the hearing of my voice today would join that noble pilgrimage or persevere 
in it until on the day of your own transport from this world into the next, you will by faith utter something like the words of one Mr. Valiant for truth. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, when that intrepid soul received his summons to enter the celestial city, words we might easily hear on Abraham's lips on the day of his entrance into glory. Though with great difficulty I am got hither, yet now I do not repent me of all the trouble I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who will now be my rewarder. Amen.